Welcome to the Organizing Ideas Podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Karen. We are One New Librarian and a Library Archives student and your hosts for this podcast. Together, we're taking a look at the relationships between organizing information and community organizing. We are recording today on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Today, our guest is my friend Evie Trong. From 2017 to 2018, she was part of and was the only Canadian fellow in the inaugural ARL, which stands for Association of Research Libraries, Fellowship for Digital and Inclusive Excellence. After finishing a double major in history and English literature, as well as a minor in Asian-Canadian and Asian Migration Studies at the University of British Columbia, she became the assistant curator at Open Space Arts Society in Victoria on Vancouver Island. Evie is the former editor at Chinatown Today, and she is currently the co-founder and librarian at Joss Paper Library, which is a research collective and community library based in Vancouver's Chinatown. We're excited to talk to her today about professionalization in the library and archives field, community organizing, and her work in Chinatown in Vancouver. Is there anything else you'd like to say in introduction before we get started? That was actually a really impressive introduction and the reason why I love it so much was because I did not send Karen or you Allison a bio. <laughs> if this is just from Karen's memory of being my friend for so long. <laughs> but thank you, it's a really kind introduction. Yeah, you've done a lot of stuff. <laughs> Uh, so you're the librarian at Joss Paper Library, and can you tell us about your interests in the library and archives field? How did that develop, and um, how have they like changed and shifted over your years of doing this kind of work? Mm -hmm. So my introduction to libraries has really been influenced by my fellowship with uh, ARL. That was a really uh, important and pivotal fellowship for me, uh, especially because as an undergraduate student, you don't get a lot of exposure to the libraries and archives fields. So usually at UBC, if you want to get into libraries, your introduction is uh, through work-learn programs uh, where you work primarily as a page, uh, especially if you're an undergraduate student. I know that once you're in grad school, um, the jobs change a little bit where you can be positioned at the digitization center or circle or other fields, but usually that also requires you being um, an MLIS student as well. So when I was a, a fellow at uh, ARL, that gave me a, um, an internship based at UBC's digitization center as well as circle. So that was really great for me to be able to kind of branch off my curiosity and build off of that. But, you know, a lot of um, my interest in libraries and archives was also due to my undergraduate degree where I studied English literature and history and also ACAM, um, ACAM being Asian Canadian and Asian Migration Studies. The the great thing about those fields was that it was challenging in the way that I didn't know how to really articulate in the beginning of my undergraduate degree, especially because I felt like, you know, when I was younger, I had really great aspirations to be, you know, in, a, in academia. And it meant a lot to me, especially because I was a, a first generation student, a second generation Vietnamese Canadian uh, or Vietnamese settler. And being a part of this university system was something that was really important for my parents, uh, for me to aspire to. And it was so difficult because I was going through the hardest time and feeling so isolated. And I think this is a feeling that a lot of first-generation students feel. And so being in English literature and being in history, there's a kind of history to it that, that I wasn't really accustomed to, especially because of the kind of culture that uh, academia tends to kind of foster. And for someone who is a person of color, who comes from a marginalized uh, community, it was very hard for me to adjust. That being said, throughout my whole undergraduate degree, these fields really depend on the position of power that libraries and archives hold. And as someone who doesn't neatly fit into these histories, these colonial histories, I felt super isolated, but then at the same time, it really positioned me well to be more curious and to also fight for the kind of representation that I want and that I know that is there uh, in 
Asian, Canadian, or Asian diasporic organizing. I definitely had a romanticized idea of what it would be like to to be a student at UBC. Mm-hmm. And I mean, okay, so I've I've think I've told you the story before, Karen, but my parents are janitors, and I remember one time uh, they had a contract at UBC, and I remember begging my parents on the weekends that they would go to UBC to take me along because I really wanted to see what campus looked like. Mm-hmm. I would be walking around with my with my mom a little bit on campus, and you know we would talk about how her dream for me was to get an education, and so I really romanticized that the epitome of success for me was to get to UBC. And then once I was really already there, I had this kind of isolation that I didn't want to really articulate because uh, I felt like I was failing if um, if I didn't neatly fit in. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's tough being a first-generation student, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Really quickly, do you want to summarize what the fellowship is who Mm -hmm. it's for I guess yeah so the Arrow Fellowship that I was a part of is called the Fellowship for Digital and Inclusive Excellence and I was a part of the inaugural cohort so in 2017-2018 it's a diversity and equity program within the library field so essentially it's created uh, out of the need to have more diversity and equity within uh, library sciences and information sciences. It's a fellowship that particularly aims at racialized communities. It's undergrads who do the fellowship? Like yeah. you weren't in a master's, so are they trying to get people to do the master's? Is that their goal with this thing? Or how did, like... No one in uh, that fellowship was um, forced to go into the MLIS. Like, they can't <laughs> force you to go. Yeah, but is that what they're, like, yeah. trying to inspire? But definitely or? they were trying to get more... Uh, interest into the library fields okay um especially like as i said earlier it's hard for an undergraduate to get any exposure into the field if you're not a grad student and that's a little bit tricky because going into grad school costs a lot of time and money and uh, if you don't know what you're getting into you can feel a little bit trapped once you're in graduate school um yeah i think a lot of people don't even know that um there's a graduate program or that Generally, librarians and archivists require or prefer a master's degree. So I Mm -hmm. think that was kind of a way to tell people, like, this is how you can become a librarian. Hello, this is Karen. This is a little bit of context for when I mentioned Denver, Colorado. In 2018, Evie and I went to Denver, Colorado in the United States, where the American Libraries Association's midwinter meeting was happening that year. I was participating in a different scholarship program, um, but we were all there for a weekend program called the Leadership Institute, where we got to meet with academic librarians that were also in town for the midwinter conference. So I know you've been dreaming and thinking about a library in Chinatown for a few years, and I think you first told me about it when we were in Denver for a conference (laughs) for that fellowship. Um, So can you introduce Joss Paper Library to us? Um, what is it and what prompted you to start this project with Christina Lee? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Christina can't be here. Um, and I don't want to speak on her behalf, but then I'll, I will speak to a little bit of Joss Paper Library and how we've imagined it. Uh, so Joss Paper Library is a research collective and community library based in Vancouver's Chinatown, where we primarily focus on self and independent published works that focus on the Asian diaspora. This is kind of a... a project that is a big dream of ours just because we've been thinking a lot about um, about what it what it means to be one a part of the Asian diaspora I know that I have my own research interests that are a little bit different from from Christina's and together we've been able to really keep interdisciplinary in how we approach this project but to speak a little bit on the, my interests in libraries and grassroots organizing <laughs> Karen, you mentioned the conference in Denver, and I only laugh just because I remember how angry I was when I was there, um, and a little bit frustrated because I think that in the library field, what we have to remember first and foremost is that librarianship and libraries and archives are institutions of power, and they are colonial institutions as well. And so I appreciate the fact that a lot of people, that, you know, when I was 
a fellow for ARL, I learned a tremendous amount because my internship was based at the digitization center and as well as Circle, and I was able to do really great projects. But at the same time, putting people of color into these institutions that are predominantly white uh, doesn't change the field as much as we'd like it to be. <laughs> um, it ends up being a lot more isolating, and if you don't have a network of care, it's very difficult to really enjoy the work that you do. And that's something that I found really tricky because when I was in Denver, Colorado, that was for the leadership conference, I believe. Yeah, and so for it was research and academic libraries yeah. specifically. So we got to meet a lot of different um, other POC librarians and everything. And it was really important for myself and I know for others to be um, in a room with other librarians who were people of color, who uh, were queer, who are doing really interesting things in their in their respective libraries. But I also saw how difficult it was for them because they ended up having to be the diversity quota. And that's a really difficult position to be in. So I remember everyone talking about diversity, equity, how that was the future. And also seeing librarians being like, oh, it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard, like not just only on top of your job, but then also to have to be on all these equity committees and to be really stretched thin because you're one of the very few POCs in your cohort or in your staff or faculty. So if you can't name white supremacy and if you can't name racism in the institutions that you work in, what use is equity and diversity? And I remember asking a lot of librarians because you know all these words and all these terms were being used and I wanted what I really wanted from other librarians and also for people in my cohort was to imagine librarianship to be fundamentally different because we already know that the system isn't working for a lot of POCs. Uh, we know that it disenfranchises so many folks, and I know we'll get into this a little bit later, but professionalization itself also disqualifies a lot of folks too who come from historically marginalized communities as well. And so for me as a person who comes from Chinatown organizing or who considers myself a community organizer, the reason why I wanted to create Joss Paper Library was so then I could have room to imagine what librarianship could be and what libraries, how libraries serve its communities. So as I said earlier, Joss Paper Library, uh, we collect on self and independent published works that focus on the Asian diaspora. With that, I'm making it very clear of the community that I am working with. And, I, and there's a lot of intention that has been put into the thought process of creating Joss Paper Library. When I say that I'm focusing on Asian diasporic experiences, I'm really cultivating a space where we can actually ask ourselves who belongs in the Asian diaspora and what bodies of literature are we looking at and how can we, can we engage more folks into this. When I was an undergraduate student, I was actually volunteering at Center A's library uh, and Center A is a contemporary art gallery that focuses on Asian contemporary art practices, both in Asia and in North America and other parts of the world as well. And when I was working at their library, I was exposed to their body of literature that they collected, uh, which was on art practices, but also artists who come from North America and Canada and the US. And I think it was the first time I ever got exposure to um, to Vietnamese Canadian artists and a lot of these artists were focusing on the kind of cross-migrational histories that they have to struggle with and I think that was the first time I was able to be exposed to an alternative literature about that centered my experiences and my identity and the reason why Joss Paper Library focuses on the collections that we do is because one I don't know if you want to put this in the podcast, but we wanted to cut out the publishers because <laughs> publishing really dictates yeah. what can be uh, out in the world, right? And so what I love about what we collect, which is like ephemera, zines, and self-made books, 
is that it's really one one first and foremost it's really punk (laughs) (laughs) it's because people are really allowing themselves to express their experiences and not have that delegitimized in any way it's really centering the self and the centering the kind of politics that we hold and it roots asian canadian identity or asian settler identity in grassroots community organizing and activism which you know asian american asian canadian history has a very long history of i you've you just <laughs> put so much stuff out there and there's a lot of really interesting things i want to pick up on a couple of threads that relate to some things we've discussed with people in our recent episodes mm-hmm. and uh one of them i have this very clear image in my mind of sitting in the same recording studio <laughs> with ian and ted and talking about precarious work and talking about people of color working in libraries and Ted saying like people always say it's a pipeline problem it's not a pipeline problem and I think what you're speaking to the pipeline is the problem and you know when talking about diversity fellowships um, at, not the not the one you were doing specifically but this mm-hmm. kind of like one-year position that often gets created in academic libraries mm-hmm. um where people have a residency and then and it disappears yeah. <laughs> at the end of a year um and i think it's really interesting the approach that you've ta- chosen to take of like well <laughs> i'm gonna create my own library <laughs> like with community and other people and stuff like yeah. that And I'm curious because in Chinatown, there are other small independent libraries. Mm -hmm. Um, There's the Chinese Community Library Services Association. Um, I I also know that 221A um, has their Pollyanna Library. Um, And I think there are other small libraries in Mm -hmm. that community. So can you talk to us a bit about like what makes um, JPL like unique and you know, how does it relate to those other organizations? Mm-hmm. What are they serving slightly different communities or doing slightly different work? Like how do you yeah, how do you differentiate yourself? The most important thing I think about working in Chinatown is that I'm not creating competition. It's because capacity is already so low in that community and everyone is already stretched so thin that the last thing that I want to do is to create competition because well for For example, you kind of mentioned um, the Chinese Community Library Services Association. And what they do is so fundamentally important to the neighborhood, especially because they've been there for so long. The people who work there have the language capacity that I don't. So I don't speak Mandarin or Cantonese. I speak Vietnamese. And also my community is a lot different too. Mm -hmm. So I focus on something that is specifically Asian diasporic. And that means unpacking what does it mean to be a part of the diaspora, what does it mean to be first or second generation, to be a first or second generation migrant, or to have these histories. So what I focus on is something that is already so questioned and so challenged oftentimes. Again, I, I credit Asian Canadian Asian Migration Studies or the ACAM program at UBC because it really allowed me to explore more of these questions about what it meant for me to be a second generation settler on these lands and to have that as a very legitimate identity to hold because it often asks us to navigate migrational histories especially and also relationships as well. Yeah. So again, uh, the goal of J- Joss Paper Library isn't to, to create any kind of competition because I don't think that's the most uh, useful method in the neighborhood. I think we're all there to really try to work with each other in the best ways that we can. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, it's definitely not competition. I think it works kind of in mm-hmm. like, what's the word, to complement it. Mm-hmm. Mutually reinforcing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, So last week, you hosted your first event with Christina. It was uh, called By Us, For Us, Grounding Art in Communities. So maybe shifting a little bit and talking about public programming, can you talk about what that means for a community library and also um, with everything you had just said in terms of just holding space for the kinds of people that you're, you're keeping in mind? Yeah, how was, how was the event and mm-hmm. um, what kind of thoughts do you have now after that's been a week now? I have a lot of thoughts. Is it okay that I rewind a little bit to like collections? Yeah. I mentioned earlier that our collections focus on self and independent published works. 
But collections in and of itself don't speak for themselves. I think, you know, I've been I've been trying to be very transparent about Joss Paper Library in the way that when we collect or when we build a collection, we're being very intentional. And so we're making choices out of our own bias. And that's a very political act. And so building this collection, I think what's really important is that we also draw people into these conversations as well, because this is what this body of literature and art can really inspire. And so for me, doing public programming is the kind of natural complementary component to building a collection, which is that, you know, it's great to have books and zines and things, but what people are actually really looking for is a sense of community and to have access points to a conversation that they might not have access to at an institution such as UBC or VPL. So, <laughs> Karen, you're laughing at me. Um, no, I just find it funny how we're sitting in VPO. <laughs> yeah, no, well, you know, it's it's great because, you know, as a community organizer and as a person who works in nonprofit, I don't have access to all this fancy equipment. To rewind a little bit, public programming is something that Christina and I have really thought long and hard about just because I think in the community that we work in, it's important to have conversations and it's important to have dialogue around these issues, especially because if we're focusing on Asian diasporic literature and art, well, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> like, I I have to be mindful that this is going to be a lot of people's first time having this conversation about their own identities. I've had, you know, a few years of having to really wrestle with these questions but the way that I had to wrestle with it was so painful it was really like undergrad was not a pretty time <laughs> and so to to have not only a body of literature that can really ex- expose me to more questions about my identity and what it means to be who I am or to be in a community with people very who sh- who hold and share very similar histories to me. I think people are just looking for conversation. So public programming is one of the ways that we want to achieve that by really engaging people in different conversations and especially um, to kind of unpack uh, what these things mean or what this this identity what this identity is. Yeah. So when we were planning Bias for Us, Grounding Art in Communities, that was our first public programming component from Joss Paper Library. And what was really important for me was, so the so at the event, we were I was moderating a discussion panel with Beatrix Peng, who is an artist and zine maker out in Hong Kong. And we were also talking to Charlene Seo, who is a community organizer in the Filipino uh, migrant labor community in Vancouver. What was really important for us to have the two of these folks here was that we were talking about collaborative arts projects with migrant labor communities. And it was really important for Christina and I to really root Asian diasporic identity in this kind of history. You know, I hold a lot of privilege being university educated, uh, begrudgingly. Um, but at the same time, I also have to understand that, yeah, my position is a position of power and privilege. But that doesn't negate the kind of histories that I do hold. And to be able to hold migrant labor communities in a strong regard as being really fundamental to our histories, as being a part of the Asian diaspora, it really holds and sheds a lot of light to who gets to speak and who gets to make art and and who gets to have political representation. And so that conversation and that public programming piece was really for us to ground ourselves in what is it that we want to talk about, especially when it pertains to the Asian diaspora and who gets to be a part of this conversation. So by no means was it a perfect program. I mean, there are things that I really want to work on. Like I, I have to, mo- <laughs> I have to work on moderating a little bit more, and I want to practice what it means to be public facing. But that's that's the fun part of being able to do this research collective, is that I get to explore the questions that I want to, and then I get to ground it in the community that I've been doing a lot of work in. Yeah, I think what you said about. Um 
how I think the process of exploring your identity shouldn't be painful or like it was painful and you know it shouldn't be yeah I wish it was less painful yeah, yeah. And I think holding I think public programming and holding spaces um, to be able to fil- facilitate these kinds of conversations you know ideally would help ease that process because mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel like the reaction is like, oh, identity is like, we shouldn't talk about it. Like, it doesn't matter now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if it doesn't to you, that's fine. But I mm-hmm. wonder if maybe that rejection yeah. of, is is part of that pain. Like that... Um, Definitely. That, that comes angst. from Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I know that this was my experience growing up. And I think, Karen, you can relate to this too. Is that assimilation was such a prized... Uh, thing uh, or assimilation was really important for our families because it didn't single you out it meant success and I think that was kind of mentioned at the Denver um, Mm -hmm. conference as well like holding space for all of us but also these are the tips and tricks for how to succeed and it kind Mm -hmm. of seemed to be a little bit contradictory but also I can understand why it was somewhat necessary yeah but i also have too much anger for that (laughs) and and so yeah i oh karen i can't tell you enough like how sometimes i get so worked up and i get so angry which is really funny because then people ask me they're like are you sure you want to go into libraries like yeah of course i really want to go into libraries because i think that the work of librarianship really aligns with the values that i hold especially as a community organizer but Again, I really feel like we can imagine our institutions to work better for us, uh, especially for marginalized communities, especially for people of color and uh, <laughs> and trans folks too. Like I don't, I don't want to have to fight so hard to feel like my identity is real and legitimate, especially because the way that I know my identity is through lived experience as well, and so no one can take that away from me but I do know that it it's constantly under threat it's constantly challenged and so you know when I look at who's involved in Chinatown and the people who might who are curious um what I see in that is you know a lot of excitement but of a but a lot it comes out of a work of really having to ask yourself like who you are and that kind of curiosity and that's what i love seeing in chinatown um, especially because it's not just undergraduate students or people in their early 20s who are interested in community organizing it starts at a really young age it starts with high schoolers who really are curious about the neighborhood and who understand that their parents vaguely have a relationship to the area, but they don't know what it is, especially because, you know, parents are sometimes hesitant to really talk about their histories or why Chinatown has been so important to to them. You know, it's sometimes, you know, Chinatown is also a place where it just serves people's basic needs uh, in a place that is um, language-wise more accessible or culturally uh, appropriate. And so to be able to work with different age groups as well has been really important for Christina and I because you know we see that curiosity and we want to foster it in the neighborhood capacity is low we want people to join in (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it's just yeah I I see little kids and it really is inspiring for me to see that there's going to be another generation of community organizers and one of these days I'm going to be an auntie in Chinatown and I want to be able to to protect these kids right because what they're going to go through is going to be really painful on a really personal level and I want to prepare them for that and I also want to build that relationship where young where the younger generation of community organizers will be curious enough to ask questions and to have that relationship reciprocated. So we're based in Vancouver and in North America, generally employers such as public libraries, academic libraries, or corporate settings require or prefer an ALA accredited degree. ALA stands for American Library Association 
And what accreditation means is that ALA accredits or essentially assigns value and credibility to certain graduate programs in library and information studies in the United States, Canada, and Puerto Rico. The ALA website says that holding a degree from an ALA accredited program, quote, provides flexibility in the types of libraries and jobs you can apply for and enhances career mobility. Many employers require an ALA accredited master's degree for professional level positions, and some states require an ALA accredited degree to work as a professional librarian in public or school libraries, end quote. So, Evie, you're currently working in a community library setting without an MLIS degree. Librarianship is an unregulated profession in British Columbia, meaning there's no one central organization overseeing and regulating um, who is a librarian. Can you tell us a little bit about what it means for you to be a librarian um, and what kind of barriers does the degree requirement uh, create and um, do you feel connected to librarianship as a whole? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, this is a good question. (laughs) I, so again, to talk a little bit of my fellowship, like that was really important for me to get the kind of exposure that I did because I don't think I would have been able to foster my curiosity in digitization or metadata or open access or conversations about open access and being a part of Circle in the way that I was. Circle is our digital repository. (laughs) At UBC, yeah. Um, That being said, in the way that I work, um, I laugh because I've been been actually saying this to a lot of people. (laughs) I refer to myself as a pirate librarian. (laughs) I, yeah, I... I refer to myself as a pirate librarian or sometimes like an illegally practicing librarian because it sounds so punk and so badass. (laughs) But, uh, you know, Karen, we talk about this all the time. (laughs) Sometimes I don't think I'm a librarian. I'm like just someone who's a little too invested in the field. I think there comes I think this has to do with like imposter syndrome. I think this has to do with how an industry standard has been used as the the bar for this profession. And so sometimes I feel like there's this huge insecurity that comes out of me um where I feel like oh what I do isn't the real work of a librarian. But I've been in really good company with a lot of people encouraging me to just start saying that, yeah, I'm a librarian. Yeah, I do the work of librarianship. The way that I work with community is is like a librarian. <laughs> um, hmm. Can you dig into that? Can you tell us specifically, like you mentioned this earlier too, like the, the similarities between how you see community organizing and how you see like what librarians do. Can you talk in like more specifics about that? I think it'll be really interesting for people as a follow-up to this stuff we've been discussing about community-led libraries. I've done quite a lot of work in Chinatown for the past couple of years. And my favorite thing, uh, my favorite kind of email to get, (laughs) it's so lame. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite kind of email to get is when undergraduate students or grad students uh, email, you know, uh, different organizations to say, hey, I'm writing a paper for SFU or UBC. I'm in this department and I'm really curious about this. And no one has capacity in Chinatown to actually answer these questions um, except for me. (laughs) (laughs) I really enjoy answering those questions. There is a lot of power when you refer folks to different research or to different resources that the community has built. So sometimes this is a little bit hard because you can't always easily find this at the university library, Um, especially because, oh, I hate to say this, (laughs) but academics have a very different relationship to neighborhoods. This is something that we often see uh, in essay writing and kind of research that folks do. So what I've been really interested in, and I know that Christina has been interested in this as well, is equitable research practices in vulnerable communities. And how do we conduct 
uh, that kind of research and how do we also build mutually beneficial relationships because what ends up happening is that a lot of students will you know I encourage this in, this curiosity I really do appreciate it but a lot of students end up asking a lot of questions about Chinatown and then they write their essay and they kind of leave and so Chinatown is not just a place where you kind of pick and choose and extract information because what's here in the neighborhood is a very long history and this history is always constantly building off of each other. You know, the cultural production in Chinatown is ongoing. That being said, I I really do want to point people to the research that has already been done, whether that's been uh, through academics and researchers who have built a really long-standing uh, relationship in Chinatown and where and where there's a little bit more of a beneficial relationship and then also to already point to the fact that organizations do do their research in the neighborhood these are folks who uh, work in different nonprofits in the area and who have spent a lot of time building up these resources for people to look through uh, that being said it might not always be the easiest um, information to grab hold of. So to have someone to be able to facilitate researchers into these different resources that have been already built, have been made, is really fun for me. Like, I think it's really important because I care about the neighborhood and I also care about researchers and people's curiosities as well. And so to be able to kind of hold both in the same regard and to build that that relationship I think is is what the neighborhood really needs but yeah everyone gets like it's always during the summer too where where summer students will be like I need all this information about Chinatown please help me and great I'm happy that you know you're choosing Chinatown as as a, a topic of interest but then at the same time we also have to understand that this is a neighborhood that was, you know, created out of racism. It has a very long history in Vancouver. And we have to respect that there are people who are still living in the area, whether that's low-income seniors or whether that's people who have a history of um, addiction. Like, we're, we're working with a neighborhood that has to wrestle with quite a lot and these are the people who are in our communities and who we work with and so we I I don't want people to just um, treat Chinatown as a novelty uh, because it isn't and it only further perpetuates a racist narrative. Yeah it's interesting because we talked about community-led libraries with Jorge. Mm -hmm. I think something you're you might find, I don't know, you can tell me after if you agree with me. <laughs> Karen can tell me if you agree with me because you were there for it. But um, community-led librarianship, although this idea has been around for, you know, some years now, I think is still struggling to get to the place that you're describing, where it sounds to me like the community organizing you're doing is you're like you have relationships with people in Chinatown with these different organizations with individuals who live in the neighborhood and you're also building relationships with students or you know quote-unquote outsiders there's not a very clear line there because I'm sure some (laughs) of those students have very direct connections to Chinatown too but and helping them build those relationships and like building a stronger community through all this work that you're doing and my impression of community-led librarianship and the way that Jorge is describing it and the way that he's trying to see it implemented at Burnaby, it's not there yet. Mm-hmm. Like, they're very much, we, I also work there, <laughs> are very much in this stage of, like, going out and getting to know people and, mm-hmm. like, learning what's going on in our communities. And if somebody were to come to a Burnaby Public Library branch when I was on the reference desk and ask me the kind of question that you're describing getting by email, I don't think that I individually or we as a library necessarily have the strength of relationships mm-hmm. to do that work well. And um, and I think that's really a shame yeah. um, because I think there's a lot of value in that kind of work. And I think that, um, it, you know, it helps us build stronger communities. And so I think that there's a lot of what you're doing that people working in these, you know, quote unquote, professional librarian positions in universities or public libraries or whatever can be learning from. like. It saddens me <laughs> that well, you struggle with the title of librarian yeah. when, to me, you're doing the work in this, like, Thank much you. more... 
I got on this podcast to be validated. (laughs) But you're doing it in a much more nuanced way than I think. Like, I think libraries are trying to get there, but I don't necessarily see it happening to the depth you're doing it. I really appreciate that comment. I really do. But to kind of like, yeah, to, to think about like your question a little bit more. What I want people to understand is that community organizing activism doesn't start at the institution. It actually starts in our neighborhoods and it starts with the communities that we have strong relationships with. And that's what I I want people to, to remember. And especially because this is such a big part of Asian settler activism as well, whether it's in Canada or the U.S., is that being a part of the Asian diaspora or to be Asian Canadian or to be Asian American uh, is rooting yourself to a political title or a political name because that's where organizing has started from. And even like, I was even thinking about this last night. I was thinking about Loretta Ross. Uh, Loretta Ross is um, is a black activist out in the U.S. And she was she was narrating this history about how the term woman of color was is was created and it was created by black women and i i really want (laughs) to root us back into this history because it points to a really complicated political identity and it starts with fighting (laughs) (laughs) which librarians are often really scared to do (laughs) no let's do it let's do it come on Throws a punches. Like, I don't know, watching what's happening in Toronto and stuff like that right now, we yeah. see it, right? People are scared. Very yeah. risk averse. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, libra- libraries are great and everything, but I feel like it's gone so unchallenged. And that's what's been really frustrating for me. It comes from vocational awe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I agree 100%. And it comes with this idea that libraries are the cornerstones of democracy and all, all these other things. And that hasn't been challenged nearly enough. What people don't understand is that, yeah, libraries and archives are institutions of power. They are highly political. They are not neutral in any ways or by any means. We see this all the time when it comes down to collections or how how people are being represented in collections as well. The Chung collection is, is really great, and it, it recently got, um, what was it, the UNESCO designation. designation. And it does it does a good job until you look at the metadata, and then you're like, oh, this is like, this needs to be cleaned up a little bit. But, you know, the thing, what I'm trying to say is that we haven't challenged our institutions enough. And we haven't held our institutions accountable enough. And what I mean by that is that when libraries are advertised as a space of neutrality, how is that not a political statement? It shows, it points to a lot of questions that when we start asking them, it starts to crumble really quickly. So, you know, with the Toronto Public Library and what's happening there, a lot of a lot of librarians, or at least the chief librarian, she has said, as well as the board, has said that that what they're doing is protecting free speech. But that hasn't been challenged enough. We haven't really gotten to this conversation about what is free speech or who is allowed to speak and what can we speak of, especially when we're talking about things that actively promote promote discrimination in the most violent ways, especially to the most vulnerable people in our communities. And so, what bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> but to kind of, sorry, to get to get back to what, what you said, Allison, like I really do appreciate that. Um, but if I'm looking at libraries as a place that can facilitate community organizing, it can't start from the institution. And so I see this quite a lot with like, universities and libraries and everything that want to do uh, that want to provide grants for better research practices between communities and the institution and that's really tricky not only because I think it's hard to work from the institution out to communities because when you work from that direction you're not really basing yourself in any community at all you want to be working with people that you know and people that you've built years of trust with it it it's so often that we see 
researchers extract information from vulnerable communities and then kind of, you know, they get their thesis and it's great. <laughs> but what I really wanted to do with Joss Paper Library is to really challenge what that institution can look like for a community by basing it in Vancouver's Chinatown, by being very intentional to what we program and what we collect as myself being a librarian. Christine doesn't want to identify as a librarian, and that's fine. Um, I wish she was here to talk a little bit more. Um, she we'll would have, to have her on another she, She's a lot she's more so eloquent than I am. Yeah, she's really busy. But, you know, Christina is actually not interested in going into library sciences. She's actually really interested in going to uh, urban planning. Mm -hmm. And so, again, like the relationship that we built has kept us very interdisciplinary within our respective fields. But again, it what grounds us is the care for the community that we that we hold. Mm -hmm. um, it's Chinatown is really special f and really dear to our hearts, but for very different reasons as well. And so, to to do the work of librarianship is to also hold this community in a regard where our histories and our identities are legitimate, and that you know we can we can build resources with each other and for each other as well so mm -hmm. what you were talking about relationship building because even if Christina doesn't want to identify as a librarian which is totally fine I think building relationships with people that are you know experts in space in design like that mm -hmm. like that's very important because you know our spaces um, how people navigate it how things are just designed like that's incredibly important um, Especially like in Chinatown where it, oftentimes that if you want to be in a space, you have to pay for it. There's like that kind of transaction. So there's like cafes, restaurants and all those things. But there isn't necessarily a space where you can just do whatever. Yeah. <laughs> which is which is what I what I really like about libraries is that, well, for one, you shouldn't judge who's using your library and for whatever reason. For folks who are experiencing poverty or homelessness, they come to the library not to read books, but oftentimes to stay warm and to to find a place to nap for, you know, a couple of hours before closing. That's a very fair use of a library. And so thinking about, you know, JPL as a space or how we're somewhat operating out of um, out of Chinatown House right now, which is a co-working space in, in Chinatown, um, is that we want to really ask ourselves how do we make ourselves available to to the needs of the community because again you know I focus on Asian diaspora experiences and that is working with I think mostly a younger generation of folks that being said it's a question that we have to still keep thinking about and that's something that Christina and I have to think through a lot especially because part of our library is functioning remotely um, or outside of spaces. Mm -hmm. Maybe towards wrapping up, I think what you said about um, libraries and archives not being neutral, which is very true, something that Jennifer Douglas at the library program at, or the archives program at UBC talked a lot about during the core during our first semester was that, yes, it's true that you know these spaces are not neutral, that they are very highly political, but perhaps one of the issues is that librarians librarians and archivists don't feel powerful. Um, there's a lot of institutional, like, I think, um, yeah, there's a lot of barriers in place. Evie, you are applying for grad school. You are applying for your MLIS. Can mm -hmm. you speak a little bit to that? Why? What does that mean to you and, I guess, JPL? Mm -hmm. The reason why I'm applying for my MLIS is because... I need resources. I, at the end of the day, like the reason why I'm doing it is because I need money and I need funding. And it is so hard to do grassroots organizing when you do not have money. <laughs> so, you know, doing my MLS at UBC opens me up to a lot of grants and it opens me up to a lot of university funding. And again, Christina and I already do the work of, um, of crossing the bridges between community organizing as well as academic research. So we we were in both. That being said though, working from the from grassroots organizing 
back into institutions means that you're not always going to get funding. Like it's so precarious in that way where sometimes the work that you do isn't fully sustainable because there's no money in it. I hate to say it in such harsh words. Being being an MLIS student or being a potential MLIS student means that I have access to grants and resource and funding that I wouldn't be able to have access to otherwise. My perspective on grad school has changed quite a lot. And I think I have my priorities more uh, set where I think that doing the MLIS is more of an asset uh, in terms of getting accredited and also to have my work perceived as more legitimate. But, you know, I also know that grad school and, you know, being a part of the university or being a part of the academy is not the epitome of the work that I do. And so to know that relationship and that distinction has been really important for me because it it reminds me of the work that I do and why it's important, but also understanding that if I have the privilege to be able to pour more resources into the community, then I'm more than happy to do that. Yeah, but I do I don't think I have the kind of um, romanticized ideas of graduate school anymore. Not as much as I did when I was when I was younger. So yeah. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Evie, for joining us and for sharing so much with us. To finish off, can you tell us if anybody would like to learn more about you or Joss Paper Library? Or how can people find you? <laughs> so uh, you can find uh, Joss Paper Library at on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So that's so on Facebook is Joss Paper Library. On Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is Joss Paper Lib, J-O-S-S, Joss, Paper, P-A-P-E-R, and Lib, L-I-B. And then if you want to keep up with my personal tweets, uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter uh, at Evie Trong, and that's spelled Y-V-Y-T-R-U-O-N-G. Thank you. Before we go, we'd like to thank Nick the Librarian and Plethorian on iTunes for leaving us reviews. They are so sweet and it is very heartwarming to receive your feedback about how the podcast is going. If others want to leave us a review or get in touch with us directly to share thoughts, we can be found on Twitter at OrganizingPod. That's organizing with a Z, not an S. And our email is OrganizingIdeasPod at gmail.com. We've also heard that people really appreciated the different contributions in our last episode, and we are discussing how to incorporate more of those going forward. If you'd like to drop us a comment about this episode or a future topic, you can do so on Twitter, by email, or you can leave us a voice message at anchor.fm slash organizing dash ideas. Thanks. My voice is so crisp. <laughs>